As they're making their way to their class, uh, we're going to continue our series in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Specifically, we're going to be reading through chapter 10, um, but we're going to be reading uh, 28, verses 28 through the end. The first 27 verses are the names of the people who uh, signed on to the covenant that we're going to be reading about. So we're not going to be reading the 27 verses of those names. We're going to be starting in verse 28 and reading to the end. So I invite you to stand as you're able as we read God's word together. Chapter 10, verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. And to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year in the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our fathers' houses, at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree, year by year, to the house of the Lord. Also, to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to, the, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from the, our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns we labor. And the priests, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Good morning, Christ Community. Nate, thank you for reading all that text again. Uh, Before we get started, um, I have some news. I think it's exciting news to share. Uh, You can be the judge after I share it. 
Um, over the past 18 months or so, um, I really want to say this on behalf of the elders, you all have been such a blessing to us uh, as leaders, um, whether you've been here for a month or you know, the last many years. Um, we have gone from uh, meeting in a church building to meeting online to meeting in a field in a backyard to meeting on a soccer field. And that's probably the best that most churches have been able to experience over the last 18 months. And if you would have told us that we would have been here two years ago, that would have been laughable. I think you'd agree. Um, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that that we have compiled a team that I joyfully refer to as Space Force to help us find a long-term solution, location for where God might be leading us um, as a church family. Well, we haven't found that quite yet. That's not the exciting news. Um, But we are going to be making a change coming uh, the first or second week of August. We're still working out the details. We are going to be moving about as far as possible from here in Champaign-Urbana to Southwest Champaign to the Stevens Family YMCA, uh, one of those first two weeks in August. Let me answer a couple questions that might just come up. Uh, There's going to be a post on Realm. Uh, If you're not on Realm, please get on Realm. Realm is our internal social media network where we give all kinds of information out to you. So if you're here and you haven't gotten a chance to get on Realm, go to our website and you can sign up for that. So some of the questions people ask, um, we were meeting at the Urbana First Methodist Church in uh, Urbana a couple years ago, and... Some people have asked why we are not heading back in that direction. Uh, Great question. Very simple answer. It simply just does not provide for the things that we need, um, including timing of services. Uh, Believe it or not, our kids have actually outgrown some of the spaces that actually are provided for us there. Uh, And so that is really just not an option anymore. Um, The other reason why, uh, two things, Uh, two, two really fundamentally important major things, two reasons why we have to move. Uh, One, uh, the children's crayons melt outside. They do. They melt it. And then a couple weeks later, it is a swampy mess, and they can't go outside. And so every single week, and then it's going to become, you know, super cold soon. Every single week, you know, a couple hours beforehand, depending on weather or climate, we have to make changes, families have to make changes as to what's going to be expected on Sundays, which some of you might not feel it the same way, but that's actually a pretty disruptive thing for families to deal with coming in week in, week out. And our hope is not just to make it easier on people, but we want to be able to serve the children that God has brought into our community. Um, We have a lot of kids, which you notice uh, just now. And we want to be able to create spaces where they're able to connect with each other and be blessed to learn about the Lord and to to enjoy fellowship together on Sunday mornings. The YMCA uh, is being extremely generous to us in providing us the use of almost every bit of their facility um, that we would need to be able to create those spaces. So we'll be meeting in a gym. Our kids will have play, you know, there's actually a play place there for younger kids, along with classrooms for Christ Community Kids on Sunday morning. So we're excited about that. Um, One thing to note, uh, it is going to require some additional help. Uh, The serve surveys are going to be coming out here, I'm not sure when, but uh, probably the next month or so. 
um, we are going to need help setting things up. It's going to require setting up chairs. It's going to require setting up kind of facilities to meet our, our needs on Sunday morning. We're going to be able to actually brew coffee again. So if you've been missing coffee for 18 months, that's coming back. Um, so we are going to need some help. And so I would urge you, if you're not yet on a team or if you're able to help out in that way, please sign up for that. We'll give you more info as we get a little bit closer. There'll be a Realm post coming up in, um, like I said, a couple days uh, that'll uh, answer some more of your questions. Um, but if you have any thoughts or questions about it, please let us know. Time is going to be the exact same, 10 o'clock. Um, we're just moving to a different location. So that is that. So you can say goodbye to the soccer field. Um, I also to say that the people who own soccer field are not here, but please know that they have been, as well, exceedingly generous with us in utilizing this space in ways that, uh, you know, have, have really blessed us over the last many months. So, all right. Into the text this morning. Um, I got to switch my brain onto this. Okay. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 10. In a couple months, um, we as a church are actually going to be celebrating uh, our 10-year anniversary. Um, About seven years ago, as we were starting to grow as a church family, we added one very important component to who we are as a church, membership. Um, Some churches are really intense with membership. Uh, They might have you sign a long document in which you commit to very specific things, like how much money you'll give or how you plan to serve or strict compliance with certain doctrinal distinctions. But for Christ's community, we've always said that we don't want to make it any more difficult to enter membership into the local church than it is to enter membership into God's universal church. Fundamentally, as we're going to see today, being a member of God's family in Nehemiah's day and in our day requires a recognition of our sin, our rebellion against God, and a recognition of our desperate need for what God has to offer, and then a commitment to the body of believers in God. And that's what we're going to see today. What is it that God is calling his people into in this covenant renewal ceremony that Nate just read about? Well, before we begin, we want to get the setting correct, because there's a lot that's happened in the last several chapters. Where are we and where have we come from? Well, if you remember back in chapter 8, the people of God gathered and asked Ezra to read the word of God. And as he read to them from God's word, the people began to weep. They were convicted over their sins, we talked about last week. When they heard the ways that they were not obeying God, they were greatly distressed. But it wasn't time then to grieve quite yet. Instead, they obeyed God and celebrated the Feast of Booths, which remembered and celebrated God's provision as they came out of Egypt. Then in chapter 9, which we looked at last week, it was finally time to actually confess their sin and to grieve over it. We saw last week that the part of confessing sin to God is also acknowledging God's never-ending goodness and never-ending mercy to his people, right? So having been reminded of all that God had done for them, having prayed it back to him, they confess their sin and they repent and they turn away from their evil ways and they write this in chapter 9, verse 38, which is actually probably the beginning of our section today. They wrote this, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. Now a covenant, as many of you know, is an agreement between two parties. 
But there is no new covenant being entered into here. After they were convicted of their sin from reading the word of God, they knew they had broken the terms of the covenant that had been given to them on Sinai. They were not creating a revised covenant, but actually recommitting themselves to what God had already done. The reminder for us, which we focused on last week, is that God remains faithful, always, always faithful, to his part of the covenant. It was the people of God who have been unfaithful. So remember back in Nehemiah 1, first chapter in Nehemiah, verses 8 and 9, it said this, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So in our context now, he's bringing them to the temple, to the place where God dwells, right? God is in the business of receiving broken, repentant sinners back to himself if they will humble themselves, confess their sins, and return to him. That is what is happening already. So this isn't a new covenant. This is Exodus 22 that says, where God says to Israel, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, here, he is the God who delivered them, and his plan is to deliver them again. So God's people are serious here. The entirety of verses 1 through 28 lay out all of the groups of people who are committed to re-entering this covenant. You have the religious leadership, including the priests and the Levites, You have the local leaders of the people. I didn't count everyone, but I believe it's somewhere over 80 people listed here who signed this covenant. But then it also says in verse 28, the rest of the people, specifically all of those who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. Back in chapter 9, they were excluding any of the outside population, even if they were worshipers of God as they were collectively, as Israel was collectively confessing their sins and the sins of their fathers. But now they're inviting everyone who will trust in the name of God to gather near and take part in this covenant renewal. All of those, it says, who had understanding, that is, understanding in God and his law, were invited to participate in the covenant renewal that was taking place. So what's the first thing that they do? Well, they enter into a curse and an oath, which are basically the same thing, right? In other words, they're taking this very seriously. They know that if they fail to do what the law of God requires, again, that a curse would fall upon them. They are essentially choosing to renew the covenant that God made with them by agreeing on the pain of being under discipline from God to keep all of the Mosaic law. That's what they say in verse 29. To walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our God, and his rules and his statutes. All of the commandments. Now I think, what do we make of that? They aren't any more naive than we are. If I asked you all to recite some sort of similar profession of intent, to obey all that God has ever commanded us from his holy word from this point forward, surely you would have to realize that you're not going to do it. As a counselor, 
I often have married couples in my office who are struggling with X, Y, or Z dynamic or relational dynamics like all of us do. In nearly every single couples counseling situation, at some point in the process, one of the two individuals will say something like, I commit to you that I will never do that thing again. I'm never shocked by those statements anymore. The person who says that is the same person who already made vows on the altar to more or less never do that thing in the first place. And here they are again promising to never be like or act like or do that again. And I always remind that person, as it reminds my own heart, that every last one of us, given the right circumstances, is capable of being David on the rooftop plotting to be with Bathsheba. We all have great capacity for sin. And if you ever wonder if your sin is actually that significant, you just look at the cross. Did your capacity for covenant-breaking sin require the death of God's Son, or was that just for the other people? So why do the people go back to make an absurd statement that they are going to obey all that God's law commands? Are they naive? I don't think so. As I said, no more than us. Do they actually believe that if they just try a little harder and make one more big promise, that somehow God would grant them favor and they'll finally do all that the law commands? I don't believe that for a second. This isn't some legalistic commitment. Rather, it is their knowledge of the goodness and the mercy of God. Their knowledge that God has already forgiven them. That gives them boldness to pursue holiness. Not in part, but fully. So verse 29, they enter a curse and an oath, which indicates that they have a very serious intention. So much as it depends on them to do all that the law requires. And they are willing to suffer the consequences if they do not. They wanted to do what God said. They trusted in God's faithfulness so much that they wanted to obey. And just a quick note for us. When you read God's word, ask yourself, are you convicted of sin? Do you long to obey God? Do you want to follow God with this kind of intensity? Does your holiness, becoming like Jesus, does your holiness matter to you? See, your pursuit of holiness, my pursuit of holiness, our commitment to follow what God commands will only ever be as strong as our understanding of how much God has already done for us. We are freed to pursue radical obedience to God, not because we'll never fail, but because even if we do, our God stands ready to forgive us. So there was a general commitment They committed themselves to follow the whole of God's law. They know they've failed, but they want desperately to do what God has commanded. So there's a general commitment, but there's also specific commitments. Every person here, including myself, have besetting sins, right? That just seem to come back over and over and over and over again. Another word for besetting would simply be annoying, annoying sins, obnoxious sins that simply come back and back and back. Would you say that's true for you? Think about your life. Are there persistent ways that you continue to find yourself in sinful patterns that just keep showing up? That's what we have here in this section. 
The people of God make a general commitment, but they also make a very specific commitment to attack the sin in their lives and in their community that keeps repeating itself over and over and over again. They're stating to God that it is their intention to do all that the law requires, and they are going to really focus on these sins that they know get them off track, that they already feel are really difficult for them. These might not be your sins, but I think the heart of these that we look at can be instructive for us. Let's look at what they say. First, from the first half of verse 30, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their sons for our daughters. Before we say anything else, I believe we mentioned this back in Ezra. This is not a commitment based on race or ethnicity. This is a commitment based on worship. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God's people are told in similar way not to intermarry with those outside of the family of God. Because Deuteronomy 7.4 says, For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So what does God want? He wants right worship. Very simply, in that time, if you were a Jew, and you were going to marry someone who was not a Jew, that would mean you would be marrying someone who worshipped other gods. Literal idols idols would be brought into the marriage. right? And God's greatest desire for his people is that they would remain faithful to worshipping him and him alone. What's more, is they're thinking generationally. See, God wasn't imposing a freedom-sucking, harsh sentence on them by limiting who they could marry. God's people were actually, on their own accord, they were choosing it in this moment. They commit to not giving their sons away or to take the daughters from those who don't worship their God. They're contending for right worship, for pure worship. This is not unlike what Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 6, where he says, do not be equally, unequally yoked with unbelievers. But what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? I've got three boys. And my greatest desire for them is that they would grow up to love and worship Jesus. And if they desire to get married, my greatest desire for their marriage is that they would marry a woman who loves and worships Jesus. I want them to be friends with as many non-Christ followers as possible, but I pray that their wives would love Jesus. Why? Because I want grandkids and great-grandkids who love and worship Jesus. I'm not saying Christian kids can't come from non-Christian homes. I did, my wife did, many of you did. But God's word matters, and he desires that his people would obey his word and enter marriage covenants Only with those who honor him. Because nothing is more important to God than his people. First commandment, having no other gods before him. Right worship matters. And it begins with the right ordering of one's life. And if you're going to marry, it begins with who you choose to link your life with. And they knew this. And they were entering into it gladly. God's people in Nehemiah understood. They see the error error of their past, and they want to give their lives and their marriages wholly to the Lord. That's the first commitment, the first specific commitment, to only marry followers of God. The second commitment regards the Sabbath. Actually, it's about the Sabbath day, a day of rest once a week, and 
the sabbatical year, or one year every seven. Listen to verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. In other words, don't make business transactions on the Sabbath. Don't work on the Sabbath. It's that simple. Now, so we're clear, I'm not going to launch into an explanation on how Christians are specifically intended to keep the Sabbath. There are different, a few different perspectives on how exactly that works out for people after Christ has come, and I'd be happy to have further conversations about that later. But what is certainly true is that to keep the Sabbath requires trust in, faith in God. So when we pause from our work in order to set one day aside to honor and worship God, we must trust him. Very practically, this means that the work that feels as though it must get done today must instead get done tomorrow, or maybe not at all. If you're a business owner and you close your doors on Sunday in order to go and worship God, are you not losing revenue? Well, that seems crazy to the world around us, but that's the point. Observance of the Sabbath was a mark of the covenant between God and his people that set them apart from the world. The sabbatical year that they were called to observe took it even further. If you were a farmer, every seven years, you would take one year off from harvest. I'm not a farmer, but I think that's a big deal. What's more, you would be required by the law to forgive the debts against your debtors, and you would simply never collect it. That's a tall order. Every seven years, you forego a full crop and forgive anyone who owes you anything. So they had to trust that however much food they were able to gather and store from the abundance of the past would be enough to sustain them. And they had to trust that the next year wouldn't be a bum crop and compound the income loss. They had to trust God. Now, who wants to be a part of that kind of religion? Who wants to be a part of a people whose God asked them to voluntarily give up comfort and security? Well, that's what's happening. These people are willingly giving up their own comfort and security in order to do that which God has commanded. To trust in and to rest in God. And so again, who wants to be a part of that religion? I would contend only people who know a God who has always been good to them who has never forsaken them, who has always delivered on his promises, a God who forgives their sins and is ready to offer great mercy. They know that God from history. They just got done praying to him and recounting his goodness. They know him from history and they know him from his word. And it is that knowledge of God that emboldens them to obedience. See, just as with God's command not to intermarry, The command to keep the Sabbath holy was not meant as a party-killing, harsh sentence on God's people. It was a gift to them so that they would learn to not rely on their own understanding and abilities and instead trust and depend on God who provides. But they had not been doing this. And so they committed themselves again in this covenant renewal ceremony to keeping the Sabbath holy. So again, even though I'm not going to get into the nuances of how we keep the Sabbath today, without question, the fourth commandment of the ten that Moses presented certainly applies to us. We, you and I, as followers of Christ, are called to rest in God. Whether you believe that means a full 24-hour rest day or a rest in Christ, who's the Lord of the Sabbath. 
It is the same as in Nehemiah's day. We are called to trust God. The goal of the Sabbath is to allow you, the people of God, to experience the joy that comes from depending on God. Finally, the last commitment they make, which is a bit more multifaceted, regards the temple. See, all of what they commit to can be summed up by looking at verse 38, which simply says, We will not neglect the house of our God. They were not going to neglect the temple. They were not going to neglect the place where they would meet with God. In what ways, though, were they not going to neglect it? There's three that I can see. From 32 and 33, the people committed themselves to the service of the temple, essentially to pay for it. They committed to giving a third of a shekel for the service of the house of God. The money that was given was used to pay for things like the feasts in the Jewish calendar, like the Feast of Booths that they just celebrated. And that's kind of significant because the conviction of sin came to them when they realized that they weren't celebrating the feasts as God had commanded. So now they all agree, okay, we're going to give to make sure that God's people can worship rightly in God's temple. So the money they gave would pay for grain offerings, for sin offerings. And it says at the end of verse 33, it would pay for all of the work of the house of our God. Second thing. The second thing for verse 34 is that they were going to make sure to keep the temple ritual sacrifices going. So the people's sin had to be atoned for, right? Remember way back in Ezra, when they came back from exile, before they did anything else, they erected an altar. Right? They barely set up their homes and they're setting up the altar. Exactly where it had been placed 70 years prior on which to make burnt offerings. See, the sacrificial system, as I think we've said multiple times in the Ezra and Nehemiah series, it was critical for right worship. It was critical for right worship in this covenant renewal that they committed to making. And so a sign-up sheet to bring stacks of wood was sent around so that families would say what they were going to bring in order to actually burn the offerings. They were committed to worshiping God in the temple, as God had told them to. And finally, verses 35 to 39, they commit to care for those who labored in the temple. See, the word first fruits is used multiple times in these five verses. First fruits of the ground, first fruits of all the fruits from trees, first born of the herds, first of the dough. I think you can get the concept. See, they were giving the very first of everything that they had to make sure that those who cared for and managed and served in the temple were taken care of. Why is this? Because again, they were committed to worshiping God the way that God had told them. What's so important to understand here is that under the Old Testament sacrificial structure, there was absolutely no other way to restore God's people to God himself apart from the sacrificial system that God had prescribed. They were willing to give the first of everything they had in order to maintain right temple worship. They were committed to supporting the ministry of God to the people of God, the primary ministry of God. Right, The primary ministry of God in the temple of God was to provide a place for the people of God to enjoy his presence. Let me say that again. The primary ministry of God in the temple of God was to, find, was to provide a place for the people of God to enjoy his presence. Christ community, these people 
after they had heard the word of God, after they were convicted of the ways that they had disobeyed, these people of God were committed to following God with their entire lives. They did so by committing their families to worshiping God, by committing themselves to keeping the Sabbath holy, by committing themselves to maintain the temple for right worship. And so here we are this morning. Church, this is a cycle. This is a cycle that has been happening over and over and over again since the creation of man in the fall. If we go just three chapters further in Nehemiah, we're going to see them fail again. They don't do the things that they say they were going to do. And this shouldn't be shocking to anyone. It's the cycle. God's people declare their allegiance to God. They declare war on sin. But ultimately, they get comfortable, forgetful, and they fail to obey God. Do you feel like that? I spoke ten minutes ago about besetting sins, annoying, obnoxious sins that keep coming up and over. There's two things that I want to close with and I want to address before I close. The first is our sin, and the second is this idea of covenant renewal. First, our sin. Simple question, important question. Are you waging war with sin? If you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, I know that you believe that God forgives sin. I know that you believe you have sin. But are you dealing with your besetting sins? Are you waging war against your sin? We must notice in this text that this is a corporate gathering. Whatever notion that we have about our relationship with God being just between me and him is misguided. God saves us in Christ to be part of the body of Christ. Going to war with sin takes an army of people, brothers and sisters in Christ, with the power and the help of the Holy Spirit to put sin to death. Are you waging war with sin Do you believe that your sin required the death of God himself? Does that demonstrate how serious it is? Are you waging war with sin? And are you doing it in the the company of brothers and sisters in Christ and community? So right now, I would invite you to consider what those sins are. Where in your life do you find yourself coming back and back and back to the same comfortable sin patterns? Where have you made peace with your sin? In effect, taking advantage of the mercy of God. Where have you decided that the sin in your life is an acceptable amount in order to just get by every day? I urge you, wage war with that sin. Involve the community. Invite others in. If we learn anything from this text in Nehemiah, as I said before, I'm confident that they didn't think they would never sin again. Their commitment to waging war with sin And that covenant renewal came because they know that they served a merciful God. Are you waging war with sin? The second thing I want to address is our covenant renewal ceremony. We touched on this a little bit last week. If you step back, what is Nehemiah doing in this last chapter? And in this chapter? 
In fact, he is leading the people back to the only way that they can ever be reconciled to God. He's leading people to acknowledge their sin, to commit to killing their sin, and then to enter back into the appropriate means of atonement for their sin, the shedding of the blood of animals in the temple. See, the only way that God's people were going to be restored in relationship with God is by continuing to go to God to participate in the covenant sacrifices that God commanded them to do. Why is that? Well, because without restoration to God, they were lost. And when they were convicted of sin, they understood that. As I mentioned last week, the primary issue that man has is with God. We are rebellious sinners, every last one of us. And we are desperately in need of God's forgiveness. Our sin is first and foremost against God himself. So when we look around at our world, it is so easy to believe that everyone else has things so messed up. Morality is being attacked in every corner of our world, right? The besetting sins of our world are only intensifying, or at least that's how it certainly seems. But we, you and I, as God's people, must understand this, as I believe God's people did in our text today. Our primary issue is not in the decay of our world. Our primary issue is with God. As Paul said, the Apostle Paul, he's the greatest sinner that he knows. And so I say that about myself, even though sometimes I don't believe it. I'm the greatest sinner that I know. I know my sin a lot more than yours. So I can say, yes, I know no one who sins as much as I do. See, Nehemiah called his people back to the temple to renew the covenant with God. They didn't just need an agreement to try harder. They needed to sacrifice the blood of animals according to God's word in order to restore themselves to God. And they needed God to show up. That is, in a way, what I'm calling us to this morning. But we have a more clear hope. We have a crucified Jesus, an empty tomb, and a risen Savior. It was never God's intention to continue spilling the blood of lambs on the altar to atone for our sin. It was always his intention to one day send his very own son and to spill his blood on a cross, on a hill, humiliated. This morning, I want us to consider very clearly what is happening. See, we are participating in a covenant renewal ceremony just like God's people did In Nehemiah, specifically in a moment as we take the Lord's Supper together. But it is a new covenant. Remember I said they weren't making a new covenant. They were just re-entering into the covenant that God had already established with them. But we have a new covenant. Just as Paul records in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. There are no more sacrifices for Christ has already been sacrificed once for all. He's been sacrificed once for all. For who? For all of those, in here and out there, who would trust in the broken body and the shed blood for the forgiveness of their sin. And then what does he say? What what are we reminded of in, in that 1 Corinthians passage? It says, do this as often as you drink it. What? In remembrance of me. You see, this thing that we're going to do in a moment, this sacrament of the Lord's Supper, It's not a cool little ritual that we do every week. 
by gathering together in this place, by proclaiming his goodness in song, by confessing our sin, by hearing from him in his word and participating in the Lord's Supper as he told us to. We are doing what Nehemiah called his people to do. We are renewing the covenant that God has made with us. But we renew it knowing that Christ has accomplished final atonement for our sin once and for all. Arguably, the most pressing problem that God's people had in Nehemiah's day was that they did not remember. They kept forgetting. And so I think then, isn't it kind and also an acknowledgement of our own forgetfulness? Isn't it kind then of Jesus to give us instructions to to take the Lord's Supper as a covenant renewal ceremony to remember the ultimate sacrifice that allows rebel sinners to keep coming back to the altar of God to receive mercy. Do this as often as you gather together in remembrance of me, proclaiming my death until I come. And that's it. How long will we do this? How long will we continue to meet, to be reminded of what Christ has done in this renewal covenant ceremony until he comes, until he returns? We will continue to gather together week in and week out until he returns. We are people in constant need of remembrance, lest we flee God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the invitation is open to you today, if you are a Christ follower, and also if you are not, to trust in the forgiveness of sins through Christ alone. But brothers and sisters, come and dine together, albeit with these little COVID self-serve cups But come and dine with the king, one with another, for he is present with us this morning, and he has mercy to offer. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. The application here is that we would be those who take note of our own sin, lay it before you, confess it, repent, and enter in again, remembering the new covenant and the blood of Christ. There will be no new covenants that you have accomplished once for all, Lord Jesus, by your death and your resurrection, a way for us to be restored to God. And I'm thankful that we have the privilege of gathering together in this place on this day to remember you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.